Hey Logo Geeks, Ian Paget here. And this week we're going to be learning about semiotics from Dr. Rachel Laws. But before we get into the interview, I want to thank the sponsor of this podcast, FreshBooks, which is a cloud-based accounting software for creative professionals. How awkward is it to ask the question, have you seen my invoice? It's cringeworthy, but when you send your invoice through FreshBooks, you'll find out when the invoice has been opened by your client. And if for whatever reason they don't pay right away, it will send automatic follow-up emails on your behalf. So you can go and try it out for yourself. I'm offering you a free 30-day trial of FreshBooks. No credit card required. All you need to do is head to freshbooks.com forward slash logogeek and enter logogeek in the how did you hear about us section. So on this week's show, we're going to be discussing the topic of semiotics. As I'm primarily a self-taught designer, I've never been taught what semiotics really is. It's just never come up and I've not felt the need to know. So even though I've heard the word, I've not really understood the role that it plays in design and marketing. And I hope I'm not the only one. Being transparent, anytime I've seen semiotics discussed online, I I thought it was just a a fancy word that some designers were using to sound, uh, I don't know, educated. Um, But I've been aware that it's the the study of signs and symbols, but I've never really considered what it really means beyond that. So I wanted to find out so that I did have a proper understanding. Uh, So I I did a search on Amazon. I found a book titled Using Semiotics in Marketing. I bought it. It arrived. And after reading a few pages, I knew I had to invite the author, Rachel Laws, on the podcast so that we can all learn more about semiotics. It turns out after reading and gaining a better understanding of what semiotics is, uh, that I've actually been thinking about and using semiotics for years without having the right word to describe my thinking. Uh, I've often thought long and hard about how uh, we as humans from a child learn from the world around us and how that would differ around the world from culture to culture. Uh, From a baby, we uh, start to associate fonts, colors, uh, and shapes with certain things. And I've always thought about how we as designers can kind of decode that information to leverage it in some way. Uh, But until reading this book, I I had no idea that there was a whole discipline related to my way of thinking. And and that is actually semiotics. My understanding of the word was just too surface level. So I, I missed the fact that there was this whole way of thinking out there and that there was useful tools and exercises that that would help me better understand the world around me. So reading this book from Laura on semiotics has had quite a big impact on me. I'm still working through the book, but it will change the way I I look at the world around me ongoing and how I apply that knowledge to not only my design work, but the way I present and talk about my work too, uh, since semiotics should really be a fundamental part of the logo design process. So if you're in the same boat as I was, I I hope today's interview will help you to properly understand what semiotics is too and how you can also use it to become a better designer. 
Rachel Laws, the author of this book, is a consumer psychologist and also recognized as one of the original founders of commercial semiotics. She supplied brand strategy and consumer insight to major brands in 20 countries, including Unilever, P&G, Kraft, Tesco, the Discovery Channel, and many more. So we have a real expert on our hands to teach us all today about semiotics. I'm super excited to share this with you. So let's dive straight into it. Here is the interview with Dr. Rachel Laws. As I mentioned previously, I'm a graphic designer, but I'm primarily self-taught. And I know there's a lot of self-taught designers out there that will be listening that will probably not even be aware of the topic that we're going to uh, be speaking about today. So in communities online, I've heard people mention uh, semiotics. And uh, when they mentioned it, Originally, I, I wasn't really familiar what it was. I, I looked into it uh, briefly, and I guess even today, I'm I'm still not that familiar with what it is beyond what I've read in your book. So I thought it would be fantastic to bring you on to speak about this topic. So I think as a as a starting question, can you explain what semiotics is? Yeah, for sure. I would love to do that. And I think that your note about um, a lot of designers being self-taught is a really interesting one. And the reason I think that's interesting is because consumers are self-taught as well. So let me explain what I mean by that. So semiotics, if you want the dictionary definition, it's the study of signs and symbols. right? And of course, what are logos, if not signs and symbols? Some logos are what we would call iconic signs like um, Kentucky Fried Chicken and we've got a picture of the friendly colonel with his beard, you know. We're invited to think that this represents some real human in real life type of thing. And then uh, the um, logos are almost um, completely abstract symbols, so they could just be strings of letters or a single letter or something along those lines. So any logo, even the simplest logo, is full of design decisions, isn't it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I'm looking, I've got, as I'm speaking to you, I've got a bunch of them up on my screen in front of me. So, you know, we've got things like um, shapes, like the Nike swoosh. We've got um, some icons like the Colonel from Kentucky Fried Chicken or that kind of mermaid on the, on the Starbucks logo or the Playboy Bunny. Um, and then we've got shapes like the Atari logo, for example, or uh, let's see, the um, there's that B logo, which is the logo of Dr. Dre's um, headphones, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is, you know, the, the, the brand is called Beats, so there's that, but also the shape of it looks like a headphone as well. So there's all these, we've got shapes and we've got decisions about whether how literal we're going to be with representing something, and we've got use of colour, and we all know that um, colour means different things to different people in different parts of the world. And then you've got decisions about how complex or simple do we want to make this? Are we going to include the brand name as part of the brand mark or not? And all of that stuff, right? Full of every logo is full of all those design decisions, as you yeah. know. Yeah. And um, when a consumer encounters a logo. And this is also true of the consumer encounters with products and advertising and company websites and all that stuff, right? When a consumer encounters a logo, 
their task is to decode it, to figure out what it means, okay? And they are going to do that using culturally available resources. So what I mean by that is every consumer, from the time that they're they're born, their, their whole life consists of exposure to different kinds of cultural experiences, right? So, like, for little children, for example, mm, like I'm speaking to in the UK, and I think almost every British infant will receive a, a little um, picture book, which their parents, you know, will lovingly look through. With yeah, them. yeah, we just got our, our little one. There you one go. As well. She's got yeah. one, right? It, yeah. On the first page, does it say A is for Apple? Uh, yes, it does. There you yeah. go. So you can see how I knew that, right? Is it a red apple just out of interest? Um, without, uh, actually, the one that we have is is green, surprisingly. Is it? Is it really? <laughs> yes, but, yeah, but when I was younger, I, I do remember them being mm. red. It was almost always a red apple. Exactly, exactly. So that's semiotics right there, right? So your young child who's, did you say a year old? Oh, she, yeah, she's a year old now, yeah. That's adorable. <laughs> so she's already having lots of culturally specific experiences which are telling her things like apples kind of stand in for fruit in general they're quite a reliable semiotic sign for fruit in general in fact as recently as the 17th century apple was a word that was used to mean any kind of fruit including nuts really interesting right Mm. so we Mm. use apple to signify fruit in general and apples are generally i'm just going to go with the line that they're generally red if we look at them like if you look at a clip art apple right now it's going to be a host of red apples you know yeah so your daughter is already amassing cultural experience so that in 25 years when she encounters the logo of some new brand and she needs to decode it she's going to use all the cultural experiences that she's had in her life up to now to help her figure out what this brand means okay and this is what i mean by consumers being self-taught Consumers don't go to art school or go to university to learn how to read logos and brand communications, but they're very skilled at it. And they, they, where do they get this skill? Well, through a lot of practice and through repeated exposure to experiences from their surrounding culture, which teach them this is what things mean. This is what red means. This is what blue means. This is what circles mean. This is what sharp angles mean. This is what it means if you write something in all caps and so on and so on. Yeah, so basically, I, I know as a designer, you can use all of these things to your advantage in, in practically everything that you're doing. I know the, the the podcast is primarily around the the topic of logo design, but you can use it in identity, you can use it in marketing, you can use it in so many uh, different places. So I, I'm thinking of uh, one real question that comes to mind is, when you're working on a brand identity project, a logo design project or identity, and you're working with a specific client, I know you can take advantage of um, semiotics. But mm-hmm. the, the the challenging thing is that all of us are individually, I guess, learning semiotics in on an, on an individual basis. So if you're wanting to target a very specific audience, you can't really... I guess you can to some degree use common sense, but is is there any way of um, understanding what semiotics a particular audience are already aware of so that you can use that to your advantage to try and target them in some way? Yeah. Can you give me an example, a couple of examples of the sort of specific consumer groups that you had in mind? Um, 
I know in your book you used the example of weddings, uh, so mm. I think that would be a good one mm. for you. So, for example, if you are designing a logo or a, an identity for uh, a wedding company, how would you go about targeting uh, or women that are are looking for uh items to plan for their wedding yeah i think this is a really interesting question i'm very fascinated by weddings because they present somewhat of a problem for the consumer they're somewhat of a puzzle so let me explain why i think that okay Okay. so um on the one hand um i'm just specifically talking about the the west here because i think asia and places like that are slightly different rules apply but if, if we're talking about the western world brides to be are very keen almost unanimously keen that their wedding should be a bit different they want something special they want it to be unique right they want it to be special and unique to them also let's bearing in bear in mind as well that when people you know how people in their sort of um late 20s early 30s they hit that age where suddenly everybody's getting married and they find that they've got to go to like four or five weddings over the summer you know (laughs) it's considerably annoying it's expensive. You've got to keep buying gifts and outfits and the food's usually not up to much and it gets repetitive, right? Yeah. <laughs> when it's when it's your wedding as part of that circus of weddings that go on, the other problem is these weddings are all the same, you know, because people go and buy these packages from these um, wedding venues. And um, so you, you've you got these kind of – they, they end up being, being very similar to each other. So you can understand how once you've attended about 10 or 12 of these things, that when it's your turn to plan your own wedding that you want something a bit different, right? You just no wonder they're dead set on having something that's unique to them. Okay? Yeah. And quite a lot, of, a lot of brides will put quite a lot of effort into trying to think at ways to make it new. Now, this should be fairly straightforward because you can do whatever you want at your wedding. It's your wedding. You can do whatever you want with it, right? But the problem is, this is really interesting from a kind of social science point of view, is that um, if you ask yourself, why do weddings feel special? Like, how is a wedding different from any other type of a gathering? The answer to that is in its um, repetitive features, a bit like Christmas, Right. Yeah. What makes Christmas Christmas? It's repetition. That's what makes Christmas. Christmas. Yeah. It's, it's the music. It's, it's the presents. It's the music. It's, it's the whatever tree. you do yeah, every single yeah, year. You get you know? a lot of nostalgia It's the tree. From it. It's the turkey. Yeah. It's the same Christmas decorations. It's the same routine where we have grandma around on Boxing Day and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. You know how some people say they will try and uh, break the rules. They go like, "Oh, uh, I, I just fancy something different this year." So. Um, what we're going to do is go and holiday to the Caribbean, you know. And then they come back and you go, how was it? And they go, oh, well, we had a lovely holiday, but it didn't really feel like Christmas. Yeah, that's Yeah, cause, yeah, that's cause I've you heard st- people say that. <laughs> right, because you stripped out all the semiotic signs that made it Christmas. You can't take it, you know, you can't, Christmas doesn't exist outside of these, outside of all of these semiotic signs like turkey and pine trees and all of that stuff, right? Yeah, sure. So the same thing with weddings, you know, if you go too kind of off-piste, you're going to end up with something that doesn't feel like a wedding and you kind of feel disappointed with it afterwards. So consumers are caught in this interesting um, catch-22 situation where they want it to be unique, but on the other hand, if you go, if you're there too successful in that, then it no longer feels like a wedding. Right? Yeah, now, yeah, that makes sense. It's really interesting. So um, what happens then is that uh, they expend a great amount of energy trying to find ways to just be different enough without losing that sense of weddingness. So there's, um, if anybody listening is, is kind of selling to the wedding industry, it's a really interesting thing because wedding suppliers can take advantage of this insight, right? So there's a, there's a website called Offbeat Bride, 
where um, uh, people will go to look for inspiration for their own weddings, but also people who've had their weddings already will upload photos and sometimes I'll do an interview and tell a little story, you know. And you can, what we see here is various, what it's showcasing is couples whose weddings achieved this balancing act between originality and convention. You know, so you've got like on the one hand, you've got certain vital um, semiotic signs will be retained, like there's got to be a cake that has tears and there's got to be a big, you know, big frock. Yeah. And yeah. and all this type of stuff, you know, but also things, some things are allowed to be different, like you're allowed to have a kind of Star Trek theme if you want one or you're allowed to have your wedding in a, a, a in a library and have everything, all your table decorations and everything be book themed. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So what we've got here is consumers manipulating semiotic signs. Okay, so they're saying like, we need some of this. We need this size of size and style of cake, and we need this style of dress, and we need this style of invitation. But also, we're going to import semiotic signs from over here. We're going to import some Star Wars, some Harry Potter. Um, some motorcycle club type of stuff. And what they're doing is mixing and matching semiotic signs from different, um, what the word technical word is, codes, in order to achieve something that's different but not too different. And so for a wedding supplier who's in that industry, let's say that you want to be able to sell, you know, table decorations or something like that, this is really useful to know about because that's what your customer is aiming for. So most things, because I'm going to say this because it's the way I look at the world, but most things in life, most things that consumers experience in, in life and most things that they populate their lives with are made out of semiotic signs. And it's just a question of which one you choose and where you get them from. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's very much like when you think about if you want to be a specific type of person like uh, I know a number of people that kind of want to be different um, but by being different they kind of end up falling yeah, into a, a right. category it's you the know, irony by... of you isn't, it? <laughs> it's, isn't that the irony of you yeah exactly like everybody wants to be different but they kind of end up being everybody's the same you know when, a very long time ago when I was younger I used to be a kind of gothic punk you know yeah. it's just yeah. the irony it's just painful you know because we all looked exactly like alike all of us <laughs> you know <laughs> so there you go it's like i was a kid and we only had so many semiotic signs to work with right so when i was a, a youth you know you could either sort of conform and wear you know mainstream fashions which you know this was like late 80s early 90s so there was a lot of stonewashed jeans and pastel mm-hmm. colored shirts and things like that and you could perm your hair you know or if you rejected that and everything that it implied like a love of capitalism and that type of thing then the only really the only option available was gothic punk, you know. So this would involve dyeing your hair black and using a can of hairspray every weekend to make it stand up on end and wearing ripped up clothing and things like this, you know. It was frankly it was a lot cheaper and easier to achieve. Yeah, yeah. Well um, I mean that that in itself is interesting because that is semiotics in in action really, right, isn't right. it? But but people don't necessarily realise that that's what they're um you know working with <laughs> yeah they don't really but once you, you see semiotics it's a really useful theory because once we've embraced this idea that the world and all the stuff that the humans created is made out of semiotic signs then we're in a position of considerable control as designers you know because we can we've got a theory now which helps us to see that semiotic signs are a form of currency yeah that consumers yeah. choose and use them and wear them on their bodies and bring them into their homes 
and um, admire some and reject others as part of an ongoing project of being themselves and living their lives. You know, once you once you know this and you've started to regard semiotic science as a kind of currency, as a kind of token which can be passed around and which um, has some meaning attached to it, that puts you in a very strong position from a design point of view. It also, frankly, puts you in a great position when um, your client says. I'm not sure about this. Why did you design it like this? Semiotics will give you a robust story that you can tell about why this is the right choice for the consumer that will help you to get past these. You know, with some clients, they're like, oh, well, um, uh, the chief executive shows all those design routes to his wife and um, she doesn't like any of them, so we've got a problem. You know, that's like mm-hmm. a scenario, yeah. you know. So one, when semiotics was new in, in, um, in marketing, I'm going back sort of 20 years now when it was brand new, Designers were initially suspicious. They were like, wait a minute, why are kind of market researchers encroaching on our territory? But then they quickly realised that semiotics will swing the balance in favour of the designer in situations where, where the client's going, well, the, you know, the boss's wife likes it in pink, so we should do a pink one. And semiotics will get you past that and offers a bit of muscle and credibility and a strong link to actual consumer behaviour that will help designers to get their get their best work in the places where they need to be mm-hmm. yeah I, I definitely think um semiotics is really important in, in particular for logo design not just for creating the uh most effective solution but also uh being able to present it to your client and have something to mm. back up what you're presenting so um I know we spoke about the the wedding example, and uh, we we mentioned Christmas as well. And and those particular examples are relatively easy to to picture w- uh, what those semiotics are. So you know, as you mentioned with the wedding, it's the the dress, the the cake, um, and also the, like the, the ceremony and, and the cursive script and all of that stuff. Do you know? Yeah, that, yeah. There's a that, number of things. There's that ongoing joke that when consumers do anything to do with their own weddings, you know, like when they put their wedding list online or they do their own invitations or something, they always use that horrible papyrus font. <laughs> you know, it's almost universally hated along with um, comic songs, isn't it? Yeah, you know? yeah, but yeah. It, it's absolutely. very much the logo of the amateur, uh, <laughs> you know, the amateurishly organised wedding, isn't it? <laughs> oh yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, with with weddings and with Christmas, it's easy to picture in your mind especially yeah. if you're um in the uk or i guess western cultures you you picture a specific type of thing uh but when you're working with a business and it's potentially a business outside of your uh knowledge you know it's, it's not mm-hmm. something that you're that familiar with how do you go about researching that industry to understand what those semiotics are so you, that you can use them to your advantage in some way as you know, you clearly can with within the wedding space. There's usually stuff out there that you can find. Uh, I'm trying to think of an example that is not so confidential. I can talk to you about. Um, so I did a piece of work. I do a lot of work with ad agencies, and um, I do a lot of work in particular with Grey London. And they had uh, the United Nations for a client, which was pretty exciting, made a change from um, FMCG, you know. And uh, the United Nations said, we've got a problem um, reaching um, younger people because um, we, they just seem they're not very interested. They don't know much about us and it's hard to get their attention, you know. Mm-hmm. 
And so we've got an interesting problem on our hands here, which is that people are not paying attention to something, you know, they don't know much about it. So I, I kind of wanted to know from it, if, if to me, immediate, I was immediately thinking of the United Nations as a semiotic sign. And what I mean by that is there's the phrase United Nations and there's also the phrase UN. And then there's the idea of the United Nations, which is sort of... Um, international um, sort of consortium of responsible people, you know, <laughs> who make responsible mm-hmm. decisions, you know. <laughs> and so I wanted to, I was thinking like, you know, obviously the, the average person, never mind the average young person, doesn't really have any contact with the United Nations at all. So I, I then was asking myself the question like, well, in that case, where would they get their ideas? Where would those ideas, where, if, they, if they know anything about the UN, even if it's only that the UN is boring, where would they get their ideas about that? And so I did a bit of digging around in pop culture to see where I could find any examples of the UN being talked about or visually depicted in any way. And what I found um, quite entertainingly was that um, the UN is surprisingly makes appearances in um, action movies, particularly mm. ones with a comedy mm. element. Um, so what will happen is that the, 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 the UN exists in these things as a sort of fall guy, it exists to be a bit pathetic and useless so that the hero can come in and save the day. So if the, you'll see him in, in like Captain America movies and things like that. So, you know, there'll be um, like some some villain or some natural disaster yeah. about to bring yeah. the world to an end, right? <laughs> and then we'll get to a scene in the, in the United Nations, which is normally depicted as there'll be a, a big room There'll be a lectern at the front, with usually with an old white man standing at the lectern making a boring speech. And the room will be arranged so that people sit, the seating is kind of in these tiered, curved tiers, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you can see it, can't you? I know you can see it in your mind. Yeah, I can, I can right? picture it, as there's, you all say. <laughs> there's all people, there's people sitting in these banks of seats. They're all from different countries. Everybody's got a name tag in front of them saying what country they're from, actually. They don't have names as people, but there'll be a tag in front saying what country they're from. None of them speak any of the languages of the other. So there's a massive just like communication problem, you know. And yeah. it, the whole situation is really, um, it, it's one of, um, in, it, it's just ineffective, you know. So what we're being shown here is a room full of old, boring people who can't understand each other, sitting around talking and not doing anything, you know. And once the establishing shot has happened, then there'll be a massive explosion and, you know, Captain America will come smashing through the through the plug glass window and, you know, shake things up and ultimately yeah, yeah. save the world, right? <laughs> so I, I just did, this was this is the kind of thing that um, semiotic research will lead you to, right? Is watching kind of ridiculous action movies and stuff like this. But um, yeah. what I discovered was that there was a lot of that out there, and that it wasn't really a surprise if people had got the idea that the UN doesn't really do anything. You know, it's just this kind of boring consortium of people who just sit around talking and are waiting for a superhero to show up and save the day. So once you know that you're in a better position to turn the the brand around now i then went to have a look at um the united nations own website and it was really um recessive visually so it was using a very kind of a muted sort of institutional shade of blue that wouldn't have been out of place in a hospital and there was this logo that was like a sort of diagrammatic globe shape 
that wouldn't have been out of place in a maths textbook. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, well, look, you're just reinforcing this impression. You know, if you if people already think that the UN is kind of cold and remote and boring, well, we've borrowed you've borrowed semiotic science here from hospitals and maths textbooks. <laughs> if you want to talk about cold and remote and boring, you see what I mean? So once once you that's how essentially how you do it. What you do is you ask yourself this question. Uh, you think of your target customer and you ask yourself this question, where has my consumer seen this before? Where have they seen this before? Whatever it might be. Well, it could be anything. It could be the United Nations. It could be baby shampoo. You know, it could be wedding clothes. It could be, you know, anything you can think of. It could be organic lentils. That you, 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 It could be some package, some new brand. It could be some new product format. It could be some new business model. In every case, you're going to ask yourself, on behalf of the consumer, where have I seen this before? And you do a bit of detective work. And that what that's going to do is answer the question of what cultural resources are consumers bringing to the task of interpreting this brand or of interpreting this business? Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, it does very much so. I guess to to some degree, in terms of understanding what the the semiotics are of uh, a client is just a case of being incredibly curious and um, trying to understand exactly where these references are coming from. And um, I, I think with with what you said about the uh, uh, with the with the UN and and uh, bringing that to a, a younger audience you've identified all these different things and I guess what you could do is uh, mix in with semiotics that the target audience would be familiar with Mm. that would allow it to be I guess a little bit more fun and and you could you could combine it from a a graphic design perspective and it makes I guess thinking of semiotics and and looking at the, the problem in that way and recognizing what those things are actually makes solving the problem a lot easier <laughs> it, it, it does one of the things i like about it is that um as i say it can often help to swing things in favor of the designer where there's a disagreement between a designer and a client because yeah. most mm-hmm. designers have got good reasons for thinking the way they do you know they're not just going like well my wife likes this one you know so yeah. mo- most designers have got some reason for coming up with this stuff and what i like about semiotics is that it provides a common language that we can use to talk about what's going on you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, because you're referencing cultural things, mm. it's it's very black and white. You can't, I mean, well, you can uh, debate it to some degree, but it is very black and white. So if you are using that, it's easier. Well, what you can do, although it's as you say, it's not completely kind of, nothing's predetermined, you know, but nothing, it's not ever completely black and white. But what semiotics will do is equip you with loads of visual, visible evidence, you know. So I try to avoid saying things or making claims about aspects of consumer life without some evidence that you can see using your eyes, you know. So I'm a big collector of things like oh god you know the sort of um photos that people post on their instagram accounts and i'm Mm -hmm. a huge collector of Uh, memes memes and that type of stuff you know because it's again memes are a form of currency aren't they oh yeah and um they exist because the successful ones exist because they successfully capture a certain mood um a driving um idea um, or a particular way of um, expressing things visually. Memes, successful memes are successful because they are very well-functioning, very powerful semiotic signs. And this is all kind of 
great um, tangible um, evidence that you can use when you're with your client and they're going, well, why have you designed it like this? You can go, well, look, because of these eight things over here, <laughs> which are all six in diff- completely different categories, which but which are conveying a similar meaning to a, to a similar customer. Mm. So is that how you would go about um, presenting stuff to the clients when you are using semiotics? Is it simply a case of pulling up a number of images and showing how you reference certain uh, sources to understand what symbols yeah that's use. the way I, that's the way I like to do it because often you know I sometimes want to say provocative things you know actually one of the best things about being a uh, independent semiologist is because it's kind of a new discipline it's a bit edgy you've got a certain I find you've got a you might I'm just going to say this between you and me and the listeners okay yeah it gives you a certain amount of diplomatic immunity um so you've got a certain amount of freedom and permission to say provocative and controversial things that might not be so easy if you were somebody's full-time employee but because semioticians a bit like creatives are regarded as being a bit um free thinkers shall we say yeah you've kind of got a bit of a license to say things that are slightly outrageous. And if so there are times when I want to say things like that, you know, like I essentially want to say, like, this is a terrible brand or, you know, why don't we make it look more like this, you know, this thing over here Mm. that you would never have considered. Um, I'm going to want some evidence that I can point to to back it up, to back up these assertions. So, yeah, I personally, it's not the only way of doing semiotics, but I like to use, when I'm writing about semiotics and sharing it with clients, I like to use loads of visual resources and visual evidence and go, look, this is the, the, these are some of the products of the culture which is your consumer is experiencing. This is what they've learned. So if we design your brand or your logo like this, here's what they're going to conclude about you. Mm, Or you can mm, give them more strategic directions. You can say, look, why don't we steer it in this direction because there's loads of energy over here. You see what I mean? Yeah, it it really gives you ammo to be able to go into someone like the United Nations and say, this is really dull and miserable. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And you could kind of blame it on Hollywood, you know. Yeah, you can, yeah. (laughs) We know that that you're lovely and warm and interesting, but unfortunately, you know. (laughs) I mean, it it, it gives it a lot of weight because it's not just coming from you. It's not what you think. It really is based on research. What I care about is what kinds of experiences consumers are having. That's what matters to me. Consumers have got... um, Uh, it's pretty difficult to come up with something so new that consumers don't have any resources for interpreting it you know most of the time if you show them some new product or service or um, logo or whatever it is there's going to be it's hard to come up with something that's completely original there's going to be stuff in there that even if even if it's the overall effect is new where they can go oh yeah i recognize this i've seen that bit somewhere before and they can kind of piece it together like a jigsaw and work out what it probably means I just want to take a short break to thank FreshBooks who have sponsored this episode. As creatives, we like to spend our time designing logos and brand identities, but a lot of us spend more time than we'd like doing admin work, like creating invoices, chasing payments, logging expenses. 
And that's where FreshBooks can help you. It's an accounting software designed for creative professionals that will save you time. For example, you can create branded, professional-looking invoices in as little as 30 seconds. You can set up credit card payments right from those invoices too, meaning that your clients can pay faster. And when it comes around to tax time, you can export out tidy reports for expenses, invoice details, and sales tax to make working with an accountant really simple. Right now, I'm offering listeners of the Logo Geek podcast a free 30-day trial. To claim that, just head to freshbooks.com forward slash Logo Geek, making sure to enter Logo Geek in how did you hear about a section. Now let's get back to the interview. So when you're working with a potential client mm. that is within a culture that you're simply not familiar with, so mm. for example, um, if I was working on something for uh, Japan or you know somewhere mm. in Asia where they have very different language, very different form of communication, um, you know the the references that they have and, and associations that they have with a color like red, it will be very different from my understanding. So when you are working uh, or, or when you are approached with a, a challenge like this, is it best to just steer clear of it because your sem- your understanding of the semiotics are so culturally different? Is it better just to avoid it or, or can you go in and, and properly research it? Yeah, this is a great question. You definitely can go in and properly research it, which is useful because there aren't um, um, uh, semiologists in every country already. So um, mm-hmm. it's good to know that we can sort of, um, you can find somebody who's not from the target country and get them to do the work. So let me explain how that works. Sure. Well, so when you're doing research, whether in your own culture or in a culture which is unfamiliar to you, there are going to be um, pros and cons of doing that. Okay, so mm-hmm. if you let's say I'm working on a British brand, yeah, the um, the huge advantage of that is that I know how life proceeds in Britain. You know, I know what kinds of things consumers normally do. You know, I know how the game is played around here. You know. Um, the 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 disadvantage, the flip side of that coin for semiologists when they're working in their own culture is that you run the risk of um, essentially going native. You run the risk of not being able to see what's important because it's too familiar to you. You can't see yeah. the wood for the trees. You mm-hmm. see what I mean? Um, so you wouldn't think to tell your clients that some particular type of consumer behaviour or whatever is significant because it's your assumption that that's what everybody does when, in fact, they don't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like drinking tea until I went abroad. I had no idea that was a very British thing to do. Yeah, especially with milk in it as well, you know. (laughs) Yeah. So so when you're at home, you know what's going on, but the, the disadvantage of that is that you can be a bit too immersed in it, you know. Yeah, yeah. When you're working in a foreign culture, um the the clearly the advantage is that you're not going to go native because everything is strange everything is new right so you're not going to you're not going to make the mistake of um thinking that anything is obvious or is doesn't require any explanation right it's all new and it's all it's all uh, making itself very um you're alert to everything as being yeah. um culturally specific and unusual you know the, the, the disadvantage, obviously, when you're working in a, a foreign culture is that you don't know all, all the everyday rules about how things normally proceed, right? So mm-hmm. the way I've, I've, I've found um, uh, that to work 
is that um, I will normally um, find somebody in that country who um, they don't need to be trained in semiotics. They just need to be reasonably intelligent and to know how things go. So I might work with... um, like say a market researcher or somebody who's got a job in marketing or quite often somebody on the client side, they clients absolutely love it. You know, if you get them to be your research assistant. So I'll work with somebody who's, <clears throat> who's native to that culture, right? Now their job is to know, essentially know about the content of the culture. What kinds of things do people eat? Um, you know, what kind of, how, what kind of things do they do during the day? And, um what kind of experience are they having when they um when they're shopping online and stuff like that so their job is to know about the content of the culture my job as a semiologist is to have a set of tools for thinking we've covered quite a lot of theory Ian, in this short conversation so far we've actually done quite a lot of theory where this idea about everything being made out of signs and symbols right mm-hmm. so once you've got that um idea installed there's quite a lot of theory. In other words, there's quite a lot of useful concepts and questions that you can ask that will help you get to the right answers. So, for example, I did a piece of work for a FMCG client probably two years ago now, and it concerned um, digital shopping in China. Mm-hmm. So it concerned um, Taobao and Tmall and these sorts of practices. Um so one of those is a bit more like Amazon and the other one's a bit more like eBay. And they um, – do you know how here we – and also in the US we have like Black Friday. Obviously, it's a yeah. really big deal in the in the US and not like a kind of a little deal in the UK. Yeah, it's growing. It's growing in popularity okay. in the UK, but I'm aware that it's, it's okay. come from the exactly. States. <laughs> so there's a Chinese equivalent, which is called Singles Day for whatever reason. And it's a gigantic circus of an event. I mean, it is epic. It makes Black Friday look like a funeral. (laughs) (laughs) Singles Day is, I can't begin to describe how massive it is. It's like Super Bowl and Christmas and presidential election all rolled into one. It's big, big, big. It's not just taking place on on your internet shopping platform, it's on TV, it's everywhere, right? Yeah. The celebrities yeah. are involved. <laughs> it's this huge televised event, you know, gigantic thing, right? So um, I've got skills in semiotics, which means that I, I, first of all, number one, I know how to think in terms of signs and symbols and design decisions. Number two, I'm ready equipped with a load of penetrating questions that you can ask, which are helpfully set out in this book that you, of mine that you've been reading, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I worked with a um, woman who was born and raised in China and was fluent in Chinese, and she just understood a lot about how life in China proceeds. I met her in London, but she'd only been in London for about two years. So prior to that, she'd been in in China, and she was thoroughly Chinese. And she and I worked together over a period of a few days, where we just got our got our, our phones out and she we looked through Team Wall and Taobao together in the in the run up to this massive event. 
So what we were doing was looking at how these online shopping platforms were generating excitement ahead of this event. So what I could see when I looked at these apps, so I could see a whole lot of semiotics going on. I can see colours, shapes, I can see headlines, captions, I can see use of space within a frame and all that stuff that designers work with every day, right? And I've got some ideas about how that conveys meaning to the consumer. But what she's got is this lived experience of being in China and being swept up in the excitement of this event. And between the two of us, we managed to decode it pretty successfully, you know. Um, so this is normally how I would how I would work. I've repeated this in about 20 countries, by the way. So normally what I would do is find somebody, often on the client side, if I can get someone, Who's, who is native to that culture, who speaks the language, who's lived there for lots of years. And we, our, my job is to know how to do semiotics and their job is to be an expert in their own culture. And then we work together in tandem and that can be really successful. Mm. Mm. So basically you are uh, creating a code, you know, kind of like a DNA that you can use yeah, if you want exactly to right, recreate yeah. that. It's fascinating. It's exactly right. It's a bit like coding in the sense that, um, I mean, I know you code is a word that's used in semiotics, but now I think about it, now you mention it, it is a bit like writing software, actually. It's a bit, yeah. like, it's a bit similar to that type of coding, you know, like you tell me what you want and I'll, I'll, I can write some code that will make it happen. Yeah, or rather like something like a toolkit or some mm. kind of DNA so that you can recreate yeah, that, exactly. that feeling, that event. And, yeah. and as a graphic designer or a marketeer knowing that if, if you mm. want to create something that will target that that you you have to use this dna yeah you can right. be flexible with it but you have to use the, those parameters in, in order for it to be um so interesting that. that's when fascinating I, on, on that chinese shopping project you know when i first I, that took place over a period of several days when i like every um, western consumer i do a lot of shopping on amazon and that's what i'm used to you know and when I first encountered these Chinese um, shopping platforms, I found them hard to understand, not just because they were in Chinese, but because the, it was really seemed really garish. It was quite painful yeah. to look at, right? Mm. They were mm. incredibly loud colours, and a lot of it was heavily animated, right? There was loads of things whizzing around on screen and exploding and this and that and fast-moving splash screens and all this stuff, right? And I actually found it difficult to look at, never mind understanding it. At the end of that project, after I'd spent some some time with my um, with my accomplice, and I'd really become familiar with um, how Timor and Taobao work and how they went about generating excitement ahead of this massive Singles Day event, I'd become quite immersed in it, you know, and it started, it, it finally made sense to me. Yeah. When that project was over, and I, I started using Amazon again, I couldn't believe how drab it was. Like, it was <laughs> like looking at a funeral director. <laughs> I couldn't believe how sombre and subdued it was and how it seemed now, because I've been immersed in the Chinese semiotics, when I came back to Amazon, which had previously seemed perfectly normal, now I wondered why it was so funereal. Why is it so static? Why is everything in black? Where's the fun? Where's the movement? Where's the excitement? Mm. Where's, where's the, where are all the semiotic signs that are going to you know stimulate joy of shopping? You see what I yeah. mean? Yeah, you know what? I I think you just identified exactly the reason why. Um, when I I worked with a, a Greek, uh, I think I think they were from Greece, a Greek client a, a number of years ago. Mm. Uh, we was creating a new website for them, and literally they wanted something. Uh, I guess what I would describe as quite ugly, but uh, mm. when you look at everything from the culture and what they're familiar with mm. in those instances, actually doing something like what I would have 
personally done mm. what i would have done was something relevant for our culture right but the people in those locations they expect to see something different and yeah. um you know if you want to comply with trends yeah uh the, the trends in our culture is different to that's what right yeah people have different, different expectations world. different expectations yeah, yeah. a friend of mine um married a um south american woman and um when she first came to the uk which is a number of years ago now when she first came to the UK and she started to watch um, British uh, TV, she remarked with surprise that she couldn't understand why the news presenters didn't dress up more to present the news. Because, you know, where she was from, being on the TV was a big deal. So you would put on your, like, really put on your best outfit and, you know, kind of honour the occasion by absolutely looking your best and, you know. So she found that the, the, the British presenters a bit dowdy in comparison so yeah mm. yeah so you mentioned about these tools for thinking mm. and um you you kind of implied it was simply questions but is there uh, those tools that you're using is are they workshops or activities what what are those tools that you can use there's a whole bunch of separate things so yeah there are workshops and activities and things you can do with clients to make them feel like they were involved in the decision make decision making which is yeah. really useful right kids um so there's loads of that stuff that you can do to create buy-in and client engagement and that type of thing mm-hmm. um but there are also, more privately, there are tools for thinking which I use when I'm just sitting at my desk by myself that are, are tools which come out of semiotics. We're back to theory again, which help me to um, ask questions, interesting questions, and look at things in a new way, right? So I'll just give you an example of one because I use this on an almost daily basis. Yeah, sure. Okay. Okay. So one here's one. I just, by the way, semiotics, you can probably tell from me, this is not just work. This is a lifestyle. You know, I do this. I'm mean, If I'm awake, I'm thinking about semiotics. It's been like this for years now. If you read this book, people, and you get into semiotics, there will come a point where it won't switch off and you'll just do it forever, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, so, I feel that way already. <laughs> it really is like it's really life-changing, you know. Anyway. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. So there's this thing that I use all the time, right? If I'm trying to test um some idea that appears to be um appears to be true, self-evidently true, right? Uh like let's pick and pick something that like um Everybody should try to take care of their health and be in good health. Yeah. Right? Sounds obvious, right? Really robust, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And so um, what I will do is if I encounter something that seems to be self-evidently true is I'll test out the hypothesis. Here is the hypothesis. If something is true, then the opposite of that thing is equally true. Right. This is a typical semiotic approach, right? Semiotics is all about kind of looking for the opposites of things and flipping things on their head and seeing what happens, right? So I will routinely do this. If I encounter some truism that everybody takes for, takes for granted, like it's important to look after your health, I will t- test it by finding the opposite of that idea and seeing if it holds any water. Now, where that will get you is not necessarily... Um, Everybody should everybody should commit suicide because I'm not sure that that holds water in the way that you'd really want it to. But mm. where it does get you to is it will cause you to notice the built-in moral imperative in this idea that everybody should take care of themselves. You should look after your health. You should do this. You should do that. Right. Mm-hmm. So what that causes you to notice is what um, sociologists call coercive healthism 
which is the tendency within a culture to try and strong arm people into doing certain behaviours that are believed to be good for their health. Mm-hmm. But the fact is a lot of people engage in behaviours which are not good for their health on paper, but which, in fact, you know, they're doing it for some reason. So if you think about the types of things that are normally considered to be vices, like during lockdown, during the pandemic, there was some panicky news report on Fox News, of all things, of course, the other day, mm-hmm. saying, um, you know, they love to put these frightening charts up just to alarm everybody. So they put a frightening bar chart up saying, you know, essentially it was about vices that have gone up since lockdown. And on this list of vices, there is drinking, smoking weed and playing video games. Well, what did you think was going to happen? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, all right. So, (laughs) you know, technically speaking, those things may not actually promote the best physical health that it's possible to have. Oh, junk food. That was the other one, eating junk food. Mm. Well, obviously. (laughs) I mean, okay. So, you know, if we're going to say, well, everybody should be take care of their health and be in the best health that they can be, well, that's all well and good. But people drink and smoke weed and play video games and eat junk food for a reason. You know, they're not, they're not wrong they're not mistaken about the benefits of those activities they do these things because they make them feel better so the point of the point of this pursuing this semiotic hypothesis which is if you encounter something that seems to be self-evidently true like people should strive to be healthy and look for the opposite of that thing and find out if there's any any if it holds water quite often it will do and what that Mm -hmm. can lead you to is um insight, new ways of thinking about consumers, new ways of looking at the world around you. It will help you to break out of this kind of culture blindness that you can get when you're examining your own culture. And also it can um, lead to, you know, just fresher, more innovative marketing strategies and more interesting brands. Yeah. Did that make sense? Yeah. Oh yeah, it does. I I mean, it's, it's, it really opens up uh, potential ideas for uh, thoughts that you wouldn't have thought out of any other way. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's a fascinating exercise. It's in also the same fun. Way. I really recommend it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm. I think just the just the concept of semiotics. If you are the type of person that just likes to uh, think and understand things, yeah. it, in itself, just any uh, thought exercise is is absolutely fascinating. But when you consider uh, semiotics within there yeah and it applies to everything that that the audience would be working on so whether you're in uh, graphic design or branding marketing mm. strategy uh, semiotics applies in absolutely everything it and it seems like a all very time. it's tool. really interesting i love it you know and it means that you've got something original to say so this is where a big part of my work comes from so some of the time i'm working with brand owners and they what they want is insight about consumers and sometimes that can be a fairly substantial essentially market research project other times when i'm working with ad agencies or designers they want answers that are quicker than that you know they don't necessarily care about having me go out and do a load of primary research. They just want some snappy ideas, you know. And because I've got a set of tools for thinking about things, like this truisms technique, what that means is that, you know, let's say that you're a branding agency or ad agency or something, and your client is some um, 
um, they own some brand in some really boring, familiar category. Let's say insurance or something like that, mm-hmm. right? Not many people are excited about insurance. It's kind of boring necessity, you yeah. know. Yeah. All, all the brands seem the same and all that stuff, right? So what the ad agencies have learned is that they can call me up and say, we've got a briefing for insurance. Can you help us think of something original to say about it? Some assets can deliver against that type of a thing at short notice because it's got this built-in kind of toolkit, you know. So it's a really great way to kind of get to a new place when thinking about a familiar category, and you can do that quite quickly and easily. And then, of course, it will then go on to inform design decisions and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think semiotics is one of those topics that I know that we could speak about for uh, (laughs) endless hours, but I want to divert people towards... Uh, your book Um, so for listeners what I wanted to do I I wanted to do an episode of semiotics because I heard people speaking about online I didn't really have a great understanding of of what it was so um, I did a search online for relevant books and then I bought Rachel's book uh, using semiotics in uh, marketing and I tell you what Rachel has really opened my eyes uh as to what semiotics is and and how I can use that within my work. And I, I know it will be the same for listeners. So do you want to spend the last few minutes or so explaining through your book so that people can go and check it out if they want yeah, to? Yeah, I'll just hand over some essential facts right now. So here, guys, <laughs> here's what you need to know, right? Number one, semiotics is fun. This is the most fun you can have while you're at work. Seriously, <laughs> I would not have got into this if it wasn't entertaining, it makes me laugh every single day. It keeps me mentally stimulated. There's a world of fun to be had from semiotics. Yeah, you one. know what? That That's the one I just want to say. I was expecting this book to be a little bit dry, <laughs> but you've made it really fun right from the outset, just reading through it. I was gripped. It's, it's um, a it's a textbook but you've got stories in there thank you uh, one of my reviewers said like this book is juicy it's incredible is it juicy it's it's regularly semiotics is regularly saucy i was just in a client meeting this morning in which i felt it necessary to discuss the adult entertainment industry you know (laughs) it's regularly a saucy topic so number one you can have fun with that number two it's useful for everybody who works with consumers brands and marketing Number three, you don't have to have studied semiotics at university in order to be able to use it. Up to now, there was a problem in the sense that the only books which really existed were a bit academic. And um, also, they were very focused on the details of how to do analysis, but they were not focused on the business processes surrounding analysis, like what happens when you get a briefing from a client? What happens if you need to write a proposal and you want to use some semiotics? How are you going to write that proposal? Or how are you going to um, do your costings? Or how are you going to, sh- once you've come up with these glittering insights, how are you going to share them? You know, So this is the first book which will t- take you all the way through the business process, right from, I've got a marketing problem on my hands, maybe semiotics would be a good idea, all the way through designing and implementing a research project, coming up with some strategic insights. One reviewer said that my chapter on strategic insights was worth the cover price of the book alone. And then finally how to share that with other people, right? So you don't need an academic background in semiotics. If you've got a basic idea about marketing, this book will take you all the way from A to Z, 
Okay. It's um, there's also other stuff you should know. I'm available on. I'm very available on LinkedIn. I'm quite invisible on social media. I'm on LinkedIn almost every day. Um, and there, so I'm, I'm there. You can ask me questions once you've got the book. You know, if you want to talk, have a chat with the author and say, like, what did you mean on page 53? I'm right there for you. There's also a um, read along group which is um, happening right now, and you've still got time to sign up mm. for that, folks. Okay. Um, it's a, it's a read along that is happening over a period of um, a few weeks. It's wrapping up at the end of July. We're not too far through it. And you, everybody's encouraged to do their own research project in semiotics um, in conjunction with the read-along. You'll find the details of that on LinkedIn if people want to follow me. So my name is Rachel Laws. You spell that L-A-W-E-S. And if you look me up on LinkedIn, you'll find details of the um, the read-along. And you're very, you're very welcome to join in with that and learn how to do semiotics as we go along. If you just want the book, the book is available on um, Amazon. It's also available direct from the publishers, koganpage.com, and from all good bookstores. <laughs> it sounds like you said that a thousand times. <laughs> <laughs> no, not a thousand, maybe a few. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what I would do is the, the, the read along that you mentioned, uh, I will add a link to that in the show notes for the episode Amazing. so that if anyone wants to find it easily, uh, that would be the uh, best place to look for that. But I think that's that's a, the perfect point to to wrap up the interview. Um, I think it's been absolutely fascinating because, like I said, I, I've I've seen people online uh, speak about semiotics, and it's been one of those topics that that to me, as as a as a self taught graphic designer, it sounds a little bit like fluff, and they're just using fancy words, but actually there's a lot to it and and even though I haven't read all of your book read yet just the the few chapters I have read and skimming through it it's um changed my perspective of it and I know that every single project I work in some way um I'm definitely going to be researching and trying to understand semiotics so that I can use them to my advantage I, I think it's going to change my process in in quite a big way so you know I appreciate you writing the book and um Thank you for coming on to uh, share some insights with us in, in the time that we've had. Ian, thanks very much for having me. It's been lots of fun. Thank you so much. If you found this episode on semiotics as useful as I did, do let myself and Rachel know by giving us a shout out on social media. I absolutely love to hear from listeners and I know that Rachel will appreciate it too. So again, if you enjoyed it, give us both a shout out. If you want to learn more about Rachel Laws, head to her website, laws-consulting.co.uk. Alternatively, head to the show notes for this episode where I'll link to the book we spoke about. I'll link to all of Rachel's social profiles. I'll link to that read along that she mentioned and basically anything else that was discussed in the interview, along with a transcription of the interview too. So to find the show notes, head to logogeek.uk forward slash 81. Again, to find the show notes for this week's episode, head to logogeek.uk forward slash 81. And before I end the interview, I got one ask for you guys. Basically, I want to try and reach more people with the podcast. So if you have been enjoying the show and you want to support me to reach more people, would you be kind enough to go onto iTunes or um, Apple Podcasts and write a review for the podcast? 
doing that will help me reach more people and the way that's done is basically um, one of the ranking factors that Apple uh, consider is the reviews so if you would be kind enough to write a, a review for the podcast it will help me to reach more people. Uh, I've been doing the podcast now for a number of years. Uh, we've just gone over 80 episodes and I only have about 20 reviews on iTunes. So if you do want to support the podcast in some way, uh, because you have been enjoying it, if you could be kind enough to write a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be hugely appreciated. So thank you so much to you if you are able to do that. And uh, a huge thank you to anyone who has already done that. It is seriously uh, greatly appreciated and, and really means so much. So thank you. So that is it for this week, but I'll see you the same time next week for another exciting episode of the Loco Geek Podcast. <laughs>